This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Dominican indulgence salesman Johann Tetzel developed a clever marketing strategy to help with the sale of indulgences. He is reported to have walked the streets of Leipzig, Leipzig and Halle crying out, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The purchase of an indulgence was thought to secure a reduction of the amount of time a person might need to spend in purgatory which was conceptualized as a place where Christians received purification in preparation for the attainment of heaven. Now, Tetzel had received authorization from Pope Leo to raise money for the reconstruction of St. Peter's by selling indulgences, so this activity was approved by the Catholic Church. Martin Luther found the sale of indulgences theologically objectionable, so he nailed his 95 theses to the door of his bishop's castle in Wittenberg, actions that would lead to the Protestant Reformation. Contemporary Christians, even most Catholics, tend to find the idea that giving money can result in forgiveness from God uh, very distasteful. But where did this idea come from, this notion that giving money or charity to the church or anyone else could somehow alleviate the human sin problem? Is it a medieval Catholic idea, a notion from late antiquity? Or perhaps does this idea stretch back into the New Testament time period or even earlier? Fortunately, we have an expert to sort all of this out for us, David Downs, to discuss his new book, Alms, Charity, Reward, and Atonement in Early Christianity. David, welcome to OnScript. It's great to have you with us today. Are you going to be able to sort all this out for us today, David? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I'll be able to take us up through the Protestant Reformation since my book stops in the middle of the third century, but I'll do my best. Thanks, David. Uh, David Downs is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. He holds degrees from Clemson, Fuller, and Princeton, having served as a teaching fellow at Princeton and as a visiting professor at Holy Cross. In addition to the book we are discussing today, Alms, David has also published The Offering of the Gentiles, Paul's Collection for Jerusalem in its Chronological, Cultural, and Cultic Contexts with Moore Zebeck, uh, as well as numerous journal articles. Now, David, I think I missed seeing you at last year's SBL, so I believe the last time I saw you was maybe at the SBL prior, or maybe it was even the one prior to that. Uh, fortunately, we happened to hop on a hotel bus at the same time, and since we had met previously, we sat together and had a conversation about your progress toward this very book that we are now discussing. Uh, you'd committed to working with Baylor, uh, and I had recently completed a Baylor book, so uh, it seems Baylor treated you well. Uh, did this go, uh, this whole process of writing uh, uh, finish up well for you? Yeah, I enjoyed the process. It was uh, uh, a long process. I think I started the project in 2008 or 2009, so I'm happy to have it finished and uh, out for people to evaluate and engage. Well, I have to say they did a, a really beautiful job with the cover art and whatnot, uh, as it's it's a marvelous finished product. Uh, so uh, an enjoyable book, obviously, too, uh, and I'm excited to dive into the details. Now, I, I wanted to uh, talk with something else about you, and it's something I know, but uh, perhaps listeners don't know, is that you're in kind of an unusual location for an on-script inter interview. You're in Tanzania right now, uh, and this actually isn't just a vacation, but an annual arrangement. Uh, and I know just a tiny bit, tiny bit about this, but I'm hoping uh, you can explain a little bit more. What are you doing in Tanzania? Sure. First, uh, let me say thank you for the opportunity to come on the podcast and to engage the book with you and with your listeners. As I've mentioned uh, to you off air, I'm both a listener and a fan of the podcast, so it's really an honor for me uh, to be a guest. I am here in Mwanza, Tanzania, which is the second largest city in Tanzania, and it sits on the southern shore of Lake Victoria. Our family has lived... Um, part of the year in Tanzania since 2008. Uh, and we do so because my wife is a doctor of infectious diseases and she has a clinical research appointment where she does uh, clinical research on a parasitic infection called schistosomiasis, which is prevalent in the Lake Victoria region of Tanzania. And uh, schistosomiasis, her research has shown as well as others, predisposes both men and women to HIV aid, uh, to infection with the HIV virus. So she does work uh, there, and that's why our family is here. Uh, from 2009 until 2015, 
our family spent six months a year here. So thanks to Fuller Seminary, my employer, which is very supportive of this arrangement, we were basically able to split our time um, between uh, uh, Mwanza and Pasadena. This past year, uh, this past academic year, our oldest child entered kindergarten. So we decided that we needed to stay in California for the whole academic year. And now we'll be returning to Tanzania for several months in the summers uh, during 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 summer vacation. So when we're here in Tanzania, um, I uh, try to do research and writing as best as I can. Most of the book that we're going to discuss, a, a lot of it was written um, while I was here in my little office in Mwanza, in our home. Um, and uh, I also volunteer and teach sometimes, although I'm not doing it this summer, at a local Pentecostal Bible college, which has been a great way for me to connect with the local context and to develop some really wonderful friendships with Tanzanian pastors and church leaders. Thanks, David. Uh, Fuller is an excellent institution uh, to support your research work and your uh, this complex arrangement in this way. Uh, I've always admired Fuller, but uh, doubly so now. Um, well, maybe we'll circle back a little bit to your Tanzanian setting, as I'd like to hear more how that context makes you think about alms and uh, the, the issue of charity and all of that, uh, as I think that would be an interesting way to uh, maybe um, uh, to bring the interview full circle. But let's, at this time, get to the book itself. Now, what I'm hoping is you can just orient us here and maybe describe a little bit what you're specifically up to in the book. The book is a study of what I call atoning almsgiving. Um, which I locate in the broader context of something I call meritorious almsgiving. So um, the idea is very common in the early church, uh, um, and it's the idea that you can obtain atonement for sin or cleansing or covering or some sort of expiation for sin if you care for the poor. We find this in second century Christian writings like Second Clement or the Didache or the Epistle of Barnabas. A little bit later in Clement of Alexandria or Origen or Cyprian, um, and later still in um, Basil the Great or Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine. So it's a very common tradition in the early church. So my book is an attempt to basically tell the story of how this tradition developed. Um, how, how, how did it become a popular notion by the third century? that caring for the poor could result in some kind of alleviation for sin. And in my book, I argue that it's connected to the larger question of the relationship between charity or almsgiving or care for the poor and reward or recompense, whether that recompense comes from God or from the people for whom you care uh, or with whom you share your resources. So um, when I started to think about writing the book, um, I thought I would focus on the New Testament and maybe do something on Christian literature in the second century. Uh, however, I quickly found, realized that I needed to engage not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, um, uh, including especially the Septuagint. Uh, and then I needed to take tell the story um, past the second century. So I take it really up through Cyprian in the middle of the third century, uh, which I think is a suitable stopping point because a lot of things change after his time period. David, the distinction between meritorious almsgiving and atoning almsgiving is something you just mentioned, and I think that's actually very important for your book. Could you spell that out a little bit further for us? Sure. Um, when you use terms like meritorious and atoning, uh, <laughs> it raises a lot of potential questions um, because those are potentially very theologically loaded terms, um, uh, especially in light of Protestant-Catholic uh, relations. So I try to be clear about what I mean. Um, when I say meritorious almsgiving, I mean that caring for the poor or offering material assistance to those in need is a way of accumulating some kind of reward or treasure. Um, and I try to be clear that, that sometimes that treasure in various texts is depicted as coming from God. I think, especially in the New Testament, that treasure is framed in terms of eschatological reward or heavenly treasure. But sometimes the recompense that you get um, or the reward that people or communities receive through their care for the poor comes in terms of um, 
material support in return. Um, uh, of, um, so meritorious almsgiving, in, in the way I use it, um, isn't like a technical term that refers to any kind of soteriological reward, but it just means that you get something in return if you care for the poor. Uh, on the other hand, atoning almsgiving um, represents uh, the notion that in some way human sin is dealt with if you care for the poor or if a community cares for the poor. And there are varieties, a variety of metaphors or images um, used to talk about this in early Christian literature. So sometimes sin is imagined as being covered or being cleansed or being destroyed or being extinguished or lightened um, or whatever, but redeemed in some texts. Um, so atoning almsgiving is meritorious because the uh, atonement that one receives represents some kind of reward or some kind of recompense, but not all meritorious almsgiving is atoning, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, and I think that's um, very well nuanced, and uh, I'd like to just stop and praise your book as a whole, uh, as I think that's characteristic of your book as a whole, is having that kind of superb nuance uh, of being able to draw out ideas in that sort of way. But I do think that's a helpful con- uh, a helpful thing for us to kind of keep in, in mind that uh, that there's a distinction between meritorious almsgiving that, that pertains primarily to a reward, uh, while atoning almsgiving is reward that actually cleanses sin in some way. Um, now, another thing that I think might be helpful for uh, uh, framing the book as a whole would be to just think a little bit about some of the differences between um, what merciful actions might have uh, meant in the ancient world and what they mean today. Uh, and I think that you do at the, at the first part of the book draw out some helpful contrasts. Um, how is it different today than when we think about charitable giving uh, versus the ancient world? Well, I suppose there are a lot of differences that one might highlight um, institutional differences, uh, cultural differences, depending on one's cultural context today. Um, I think one of the things I try to highlight in the book is that um, by and large, although this wasn't always the case, but more so I think in the ancient world than it is for certainly contemporary Western um, readers, uh, what we call charity or charitable relations or, or charitable actions were embedded in social networks or relationships of reciprocity. So today in the modern Western world, we have something called charity where you can write your check to some organization um, and provide material assistance to those in need, but you don't really have any real relationship with the people who benefit from your assistance. And one of the things I try to suggest in the book is that in in antiquity, um, uh, in the Roman imperial period, period in particular, um, those kinds of charitable transactions were much more deeply embedded in relationships, and those relationships tended to be much more reciprocal than um, most charitable relationships are today. And uh, in order to make that claim, I tr- draw on some recent work um, uh, dealing with issues of wealth distribution and resource distribution in the ancient world. Um, suggesting that for m- the vast majority of people in Greco-Roman antiquity, poverty was a way of life and a way of death. That um, you know maybe 90% or more of the population lived at, near, or below subsistence level, according to some estimates. And even if you're a little bit more optimistic than that, you still probably have three-quarters of the population living in what we would consider to be um, – uh, significant poverty. So most economic transactions, I suggest, among the earliest followers of Jesus took place in the context of these kinds of relationships of reciprocity, solidarity, uh, and recompense among those who gave and those who received with the assumption that in many cases, givers would soon be receivers and receivers would soon be givers. Yeah, obviously that work uh, 
that you've done connects closely to some work that John Barclay has done, uh, and he was a, a previous on-script guest with his book, Paul and the Gift. Now, I think Barclay appeared too late for you uh, to engage uh, in your in your book, um, but uh, it was interesting to me to see the points of contact between you and Barclay. Now, I don't know if you've been able to spend much time with Barclay yet, uh, but I don't know if you had any further thoughts of your own work in light of Barclay, if you felt like that uh, you had some resonance with him or if there were some points of disagreement. Well, one of the great honors uh, of, about, or one of the, the the happiest things for me about this book is that Professor Barclay blurbed it, <laughs> uh, which is a real honor for me because he's someone for whom I have tremendous respect as a scholar. And I, 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 his book Paul and the Gift came out after I submitted my work to Baylor, so I had read a few of his essays. I had seen a little bit um, in terms of what he was doing in his own research on anthropology, anthropological perspectives on gift giving and solidarity. Um, so I eagerly read Paul and the Gift when it came out um, after I had already uh, submitted my book for publication. And I was very happy to see that I think we were tracking along some of the very same lines um, that what he does in Paul and the Gift uh, is very much like what I think I try to do in the book and especially in chapter one, which is to tease out this idea that um, it really is in many ways a modern Western invention that true gift giving should not be self-interested, that there should be no expectation of return. And I, I should say, um, I think Professor Barkley does a better job than I do in my book of teasing out the uh, or exploring the um, uh, historical context of when that development happened. He, he argues, I think, pretty strongly that um, Martin Luther is a, is a prominent figure in that transition, um, so that in his terms, um, the, the non-circularity of the gift becomes perfected, which is the idea that for a gift to be a true gift, there can be no return or recompense. Um, and I think... Um, what I try to do in terms of the social context of the early Christian movement is to show that that's just not how gift giving worked in the world of Greco-Roman antiquity. And uh, thankfully, I think Professor Barclay agrees with me. Yes, I think you were very much arguing along the same lines. Uh, and uh, and uh, that was an interesting connection for me to see. Um, let's go to your chapter one, where you begin to uh, analyze alms in the Old Testament, uh, and what are a few of the most important texts or results here for you from this chapter? And then I have a question about method for you to follow up on that, but let's start there. Uh, some important texts or results for you. Sure. I think um, one of the things I argue in the book is that there, there really are a cluster of, of text or passages from what we call the Old Testament that feature um, prominently or significantly in uh, early Christian discussions of meritorious and atoning almsgiving. And those texts in particular are the Septuagint version of Proverbs 15.27, uh, Theodosian's versions of Daniel 4.27, and then from what uh, is sometimes called the Apocrypha, uh, Tobit chapter 12, and Sirach 3.30. So I think that, that's really chapters 2 and 3, I guess. But there are these sort of clusters of texts that function as important passages that early Christian readers appeal to in their discussions and um, promotions of meritorious and atoning almsgiving. So, for example, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, when Daniel is um, interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he says uh, in Theodosian's version of the Greek text, therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you and redeem your sins with acts of mercy and your injustices with compassion for the poor. And that becomes a very important text for a number of early Christian authors who, who pick up on that and who argue on the basis of that text and others um, that caring for the poor is something that uh, is an act that alleviates um, uh, human sin or transgression. 
I felt that you had a really important point of method uh, in this chapter one, uh, and you you drew out a distinction between what we call monosemi and polysemi uh, with respect to the translation of words, uh, and specifically you're concerned uh, with the word lea masune, uh, the word that is uh, sometimes translated merciful acts or charitable deeds or uh, mercy itself. Um, can you explain what your point was there uh, and why it might matter? I hope I can explain both what my point is and why it might matter, but it's a little technical. Um, part of the problem has to do with the English language, um, because when w people, modern speakers of English, use the term use terms like alms or almsgiving, uh, I think mostly what they mean is um, monetary contributions to the poor, or at least material contributions to the poor, and it certainly can mean that. And the Greek term "ele musune" can mean that. Um, what I argue in the book, however, is that um, uh, the term "ele musune," I suggest, is best approached from the perspective of lexical monosemi. And I should say that I, I really learned a lot about this from my own PhD student Ben Lappinga, who wrote a fantastic dissertation on Paul's language of zeal, which has recently been published by Brill. Um, in which he really introduced me to this um, semantic concept. And I, so I learned a lot from Ben. But basically the idea is that um, your default setting when thinking about the meaning of a word shouldn't be lexical polysemi, but instead lexical monosemi. And what that means basically is that many of our dictionaries and lexicons operate from a perspective of lexical polysemi. That is, if you open up BDAG, um, you'll, and you look at an entry for a word, you'll see six or seven potential meanings sometimes. And so the idea is that words have a variety of different meanings. And so you have to sort of choose which one you think fits the context best. Uh, conversely, lexical monosemi argues that, that really the default setting should be the assumption that a word has a singular meaning and that that meaning can be adjusted in context. So it might not sound like a big difference, but I think it's rather significant. And the reason I find it important when thinking about the Greek word Ele Musune, both in the Septuagint and also in New Testament and also in early Christian literature, is that I don't think our default setting or translation should be almsgiving, as if if we mean by that um, giving money to the poor. It, it much more um, commonly reflects the notion of mercy or some kind of merciful action or merciful deed. So, for example, in the Septuagint version of, I think, Proverbs 24, 13, God performs L.A. Mosune, and that's actually common um, elsewhere in other places in the Septuagint. So, so God demonstrates merciful deeds, and clearly by that, the Septuagint doesn't mean God gives alms to the poor. God writes a check to people or something like that. It means that God demonstrates merciful actions. So the, the kind of takeaway from this somewhat complicated semantic perspective is that, uh, in my view, the default um, assumption when we come across the word L.A. Musune in Greek text is that it means something like merciful deeds or merciful practice. And then it's the context that tells you what that looks like, whether that means giving money to the poor or providing hospitality to the poor or performing some other kind of merciful deed or action. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, and I felt like I learned a lot from that section. Uh, so I really appreciated it. Um, now, moving along, uh, in Chapter 2, you especially discuss Tobit and Sirach, uh, texts that are part of the Catholic Orthodox canon, but not the Protestant. Um, so what are some of the developments we see in Tobit and, and Sirach, especially then um, with regard to atoning almsgiving? Yeah, Tobit um, uh, chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 exists. Well, it actually exists in two different versions of the Greek text. So I'll read you um, G2 because it's the one that's used by early Christian authors. Prayer with truth is good, and the merciful action of almsgiving with righteousness is better than wealth with unrighteousness. It is better to practice the merciful deed of almsgiving than to store up gold. Merciful action delivers from death, and it cleanses every sin. Those who practice merciful action will be satisfied with life. And Sirach 3.30 says, A blazing fire water will extinguish, 
and merciful deeds or merciful acts atone for sins. I'm not sure that there's a great deal of development that I trace in my book between what we call the Old Testament and these um, writings of Sirach and Tobit, partly because when I deal with the Old Testament, I'm primarily dealing with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because I think that's what early Christian writers used. And when I deal with Tobit and Sirach, for example, I'm also dealing with the Greek versions of those texts, because those were the texts that were um, uh, appropriated by early Christian writers. Um, I guess I'll maybe I'll answer your question by saying uh, something that I don't think is a development. I When I read Sirach and Tobit and um, also Proverbs uh, and Daniel, I, I don't think in the Old Testament atoning almsgiving or even meritorious almsgiving by and large is placed in an eschatological context. That is, I think in, in my argument is in the narrative of Tobit and also in Sirach, um, the recompense or the return that people receive from practicing mercy or caring for the poor by and large is received in, in, in this present life. And, um, uh, I try to make that um, case, for example, in the narrative of Tobit and in the the worldview of Proverbs and of Sirach, uh, where I think these texts just aren't that interested in heavenly or eschatological reward. But I think that's a a later development. And you certainly see that in Christian texts. Um, And if I would circle back a little bit to the context of this book, I think part of the reason I think that – has something to do with the context of, of writing, which is that we talked about already, I, I tried to stress in the beginning the idea that discussions about almsgiving among early Christians, but also among Jews in the Second Temple period, by and large, were discussions among people for whom poverty was an ever-present reality. Um, even the literate and the wealthy were uh, in danger of slipping into destitution. So, um, uh I, I think I sort of chafe against um, a notion that these texts can be too easily spiritualized um, um, so that the return becomes something put off into the afterlife or into the eschaton. Um, because I think for a lot of readers, uh, when they read something that said, if you give, you'll get back, the getting back was that if your crops fail, uh, next year, you'll, your neighbor will provide for you because you provided for your neighbor this year. It's, I think it's that sort of reality. So if I'm summarizing fairly then, or maybe you might want to nuance a little bit more, that by saying you don't think that it's consistently in an eschatological framework, you're saying that uh, this was a more immediate return, right? Uh, if if I give money to the poor person, uh, well, then the poor person uh, next year might be the one giving back to me uh, because I might have a disaster that the poor person then um, who is now doing decently well uh, might be able to help alleviate. Is that is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, there's a great story in the book of Tobit, I think, that illustrates this. Um, uh, in Tobit chapter 14, um, uh, Tobit says to his son, Behold, my child, what Nadine did to Ahikar who reared him. Was not Ahikar, while still living, forced underground? And God repaid the dishonor against his face, and Ahikar came out into the light, and Nadine went into the eternal darkness because Nadine sought to kill Ahikar. Uh, he goes on to say, children, behold what an act of mercy does and what unrighteousness does. It kills. Um, earlier in the story, Tobit, uh, we read in Tobit that almsgiving rescues from death. And what is picked up in Tobit chapter 14 is this story where somebody who performed alms is actually saved from death because the person who had the responsibility of executing them doesn't actually do it. Uh, so it, it, it's a very much a sort of this worldly uh, notion of recompense, because I think Tobit, frankly, isn't that interested in ideas about the eschatological future. Yeah, I think you might uh, uh, be entering into a dispute there with um, at least one of one of my mentors and friends, Gary Anderson, uh, who's obviously written quite a bit uh, on uh, this topic, and I think he wants to see more of an eschatological context in Tobit itself. Um, and I think that you um, you and Gary have an interesting dialogue going in the book. Now, uh, Gary's a good friend and a good mentor, but I think um, uh, you certainly, I think, um, raised some important 
uh, points of consideration in terms of Geary's overall constructs uh, that he is um, uh, putting forward in his book, Sin and Charity. Um, how, I guess if, if you were to get at the heart of what you think um, uh, needs adjusting in Gary's work, um, what, where is that point of adjustment most necessary? As I think you had an important dialogue going on that I, that I want to hear more about, and uh, I suspect readers, uh, listeners might want to hear more about too. Uh, I suppose you're baiting me into some sort of uh, controversy, Matt, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait. Um, I have very much appreciated Professor Anderson's work, and I've learned a great deal from it. Um, I think we have uh, just some differences in terms of, um, well, as I was just talking about, I, I see um, the eschatological emphasis emerging in both rabbinic Judaism and uh, in early Christian writings at a much later point than I think Professor Anderson does. I think he tends to sort of push that um, back, uh, that that eschatological focus back into the Septuagint or even back into the um, Hebrew and Aramaic uh, text that the Greek is translating. So I think we differ on that point. Um, And I think another point of difference is that Professor Anderson has – what I would call something like a, a, a grand narrative of um, of sin, as he's clearly argued in, in in both of his books, that his central claim is that in the Second Temple period, the dominant metaphor for sin shifted so that it became an economic metaphor, so that um, uh, uh, sins could be forgiven. Um, uh, sin became imaged as... Um, uh, as a debt, as an obligation that could be forgiven as opposed to some other kind of metaphor like a weight or a burden or a stain. And I think um, whereas Professor Anderson tends to see um, that economic metaphor present in almost every text that he looks at, um, I, I tend to think that what we find in Second Temple and early Christian texts are a diversity of metaphors to talk about what sin is and how sin is alleviated. So I'm not, I think, as convinced as Professor Anderson is that um, that this grand metaphor of sin as debt is as present in as many texts as he thinks as it is. I hope that's a fair yeah, summary of his position. I think that's very fair, and uh, I, I wasn't trying to bait you or create controversy, although that might be fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I very much uh, uh, respect uh, Gary's work and yours also, and I think you have uh, an important dialogue going on. Um, you know, obviously Gary is writing from a Roman Catholic context and wanting to um, to make arguments in the direction that this um, this directly connects to developing ideas of purgatory and the treasury of merit and the idea that one could, you know, give um, uh, uh, money to uh, the church in the form of an indulgence in the Middle Ages, uh, and uh, that could be used then to reduce the amount of time spent in purgatory. Uh, and uh, so he, he wants to see this uh, mobilizing more directly, I think, and you want to say, no, I'm, I'm not so sure uh, that it moves in such a direct line. So here's here's my question about chapters four and chapter five. Then uh, would be many of these texts speak of meritorious almsgiving, the idea that you would get a reward uh, from God uh, or perhaps a reward more directly from someone else through almsgiving. Do any of them speak of atoning almsgiving? Well, if there is a candidate uh, in chapter four, which is the chapter on the Gospels and Acts. Um, I would suggest that the clearest text, uh, or the, the 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 most important text, is Luke chapter 11, verses 39 and 41, and especially Luke 11:41, where Jesus is having a conversation with um, an unnamed Pharisee at a meal hosted by that Pharisee, and uh, his host is surprised that Jesus does not wash his hands before the meal. And Jesus says, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside of you is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also. So give alms with respect to the things within and see everything is clean for you. And it was really reading 
Christopher Hayes's book on uh, I can't remember the title of it, but Luke's Wealth Ethics that helped me uh, come to terms with what I think is going on in this particular verse. Many English translations render this, uh, especially Luke eleven forty one, something like "Give as alms those things that are within." But that's a very confusing translation because Jesus has just said that inside of the Pharisees they are full of greed and wickedness. Um, so Christopher Hayes has convinced me that the best way to read um, uh, the Greek phrase ta ananta dote elemosunein is as an accusative of respect. Give um, alms with respect to the things that are inside and see everything will be clean. And um, that is a text, uh, that's an argument sort of from the literary context of Luke, but this is a, a passage that, beca- that gets picked up um, uh, very importantly among some early Christian authors. So Cyprian, for example, in the third century, starts out his own treatise on atoning almsgiving by citing three texts, uh, the Greek version of Proverbs 15.27, Sirach 3.30, and Luke 11, 40 and 41. So he cites this passage from the Gospel of Luke as demonstrating that Jesus himself advocates the idea that caring for the poor, giving alms, um, has a cleansing effect uh, for the things that are in within a person, the Pharisees whom he's engaging. In chapter 6, you discussed 1 Peter 4, 8. Uh, which is maybe the most provocative text in the New Testament uh, on this topic, uh, as it's as First Peter four eight says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, um, so what's the there's a, there's a whole diversity of ways to interpret this, uh, and you you masterfully cover all that uh, for us, and um, and I think that you do lay a finger on a certain kind of anxiety. Uh, that some interpreters have, probably of a more Protestant persuasion. Um, what is that? What is that anxiety uh, with this love covers over a multitude of sins? And uh, and then I think you do something clever. Um, you use reception history as a tool to kind of help uh, uh, probe possible meanings of of this in its original context. Yeah, I think the Protestant anxiety is not just about 1 Peter 4, 8, but it's sort of about the whole topic of this book. And I, you started out your um, uh, your introduction by talking about Johann Tetzel and the selling of indulgences. And certainly in my context, teaching at Fuller and evangelical Protestant context, um, whenever I would tell people what I was working on or um, talk to my students about my research, immediately – the response was, whoa, that's, uh, that sounds like indulgences. That sounds like the reason for the Protestant Reformation. So I think in a, in a large sense, that's the anxiety that hangs over a text like 1 Peter 4.8, as well as um, a lot of the texts that I discuss. In fact, I, um, I open my book by citing um, the first line of Robert Lowry's uh, famous 19th century hymn, Nothing But the Blood. The, the, the first line is a question, what can wash away my sin? And the question is answered by the title of the song, Not the Blood of Jesus. So among evangelical Protestants, I think there's a great deal of nervousness about the idea that something other than the death of Jesus might be at work in atonement for sin. So when you come to a text like 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins, the question is, whose love covers whose sins. And um, I think an impulse that you see in a number of commentaries, certainly by Protestants, is to say that it's God's love that covers human sin. And what I try to explore in chapter 4 is that's not exactly how the verse was interpreted by its earliest Christian readers, really up through the 3rd century, that by and large um, the first Christian interpreters understood First Peter 4.8 to refer to human love covering the sins of those who demonstrate such love, including a number of advocates like the author of Second Clement um, or um, Clement of Alexandria, um, uh, who explicitly connect this with care for the poor, love demonstrated through acts of mercy to the poor. Um, so that's 
the anxiety, and maybe you have to remind me then of the second part of your question. Uh, well, you started to answer it. Uh, in fact, it it had to do with how reception history uh, might might help solve this issue for us. And and here's uh, I guess a, a a comment where I think you could have uh, maybe. Uh, pushed harder in your book toward, I think, an attractive solution. Uh, this was on your page 201, um, you know, where you, uh, you had, you'd sort of outlined some of the reception history and, um, uh, you, you um, maybe leave it a little more ambiguous than I was hoping you might, as I think you'd made a stronger case than you, um, uh, uh, than you, than you marched forward with here. I'll read a little bit, uh, from your page 201. If, as the patristic evidence suggests, agape in the phrase love covers a multitude of sins refers to human acts of love, including care for the poor, as capable of atoning for human sin, does this exercise in Verkungsgeschichte suggest that early Christian advocates of the atoning power of almsgiving offer a faithful hermeneutical, hermeneutical embodiment of the early church's inherited scriptures? The issue cannot be decided on the basis of a study of a single statement from 1 Peter, and undoubtedly there will be some who regard patristic reception of 4.8 as entirely problematic, with the true meaning of the text recovered at some later time, perhaps during the Protestant Reformation, uh, perhaps with the tools of the historical critic. But if the meaning of a text cannot be separated from its history of influence, uh, with meaning emerging as a result of a conversation between a text, uh, the influence of that text, and an interpreter or interpretive community, uh, then early Christian reception of 1 Peter 4.8 ought to play a key role in answering the question of whether the efficacious sacrificial love of Jesus Christ can be affirmed, along with the idea that cruciform love shown by believers has the power to atone for sins of those who demonstrate such love. Um, that's nice because it maybe gives listeners uh, a little sense of the flavor of your writing uh, and the precision of your writing. Um, but I thought also it was, uh, uh, I think you'd made a really strong case that reception history actually should act as a historical critical control. And maybe it's the best control we have. Uh, and uh, certainly I think you're leaning in that direction. But I wanted you to maybe kick, uh, kick the football through the goalposts there uh, and really drive the point home. If I can respond to that briefly, I'll just say, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that Matt Bates thinks I should um, do more with reception history as a, as a means of unlocking the meaning of a New Testament text. Uh, because that's, I mean, I think we, we share, share a similar interest um, in uh, the ways in which later readings of text can shape our understanding of, of earlier text. So um, I, I, I guess in some sense, I don't kick the ball through the goalpost in this particular chapter, but I, I think I do suggest at the end um, and I want to argue that, 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 that this does represent a faithful reading of the text. And, and one of the things that I am uh, wrestling with in the book and, and, and sort of talking about when I get to uh, certainly Christian literature in the second and third centuries is this fascinating dynamic that early Christian advocates of atoning almsgiving saw no contradiction in um, and making emphatic claims about the unique, powerful, majestic, um, unrepeatable significance of Jesus's death and resurrection, and also, on the other hand, saying that caring for the poor could alleviate sin. So what seems like a contradiction, perhaps, in some theological traditions to these early Christian interpreters was uh, does not appear to have been an issue. It doesn't seem to have uh, provoked any particular questions. And even a text like First Peter has a very strong emphasis on the atoning sacrificial significance of Jesus's death. And yet the author can still say love covers a multitude of sins. Do you think that our Protestant systematic framework is robust enough to handle uh, the idea uh, that Jesus's sacrifice alone is atoning and yet almsgiving might be atoning too? Uh, do you think that we need to modify uh, our systems uh, or uh, uh, is there a space for this? If so, how? That's, uh, I'm moving you more maybe outside your comfort zone into more systematic theology, outside of my comfort zone, too. Uh, but well, maybe we'll kick this idea around a little bit and, and see what we think. Well, to continue the American football analogy, if in the last question I was supposed to kick it through the goalpost, this question I'm tempted to punt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because it, um, I mean, in many ways, my book is a historical study um, of how this tradition developed in the early centuries of the Christian movement. So I'm not a systematic theologian, so I want to be very careful here. I mean, you have, as I talk about at the end of my book, I mean, you have people like Cyprian 
in the third century who I think tries to answer this question in some way by developing what I call a chronology of atonement, which is that he's pretty clear that the death of Jesus forgives all sins before baptism, but after baptism, there are other ways of um, alleviating sin, including almsgiving, and Origen offers a similar kind of construction. So um, I don't think many Protestants would be satisfied with that. Um, But I think, I guess I, I think one of the intriguing things about this particular story, the story of the emergence of atoning almsgiving, is to go back to what I said earlier, that um, what what many Protestants perceive as a point of tension doesn't seem to have been an issue uh, among these early church interpreters. And I don't think they offer the kind of systematic precision in handling these two realities, that is the confession of the unique atoning significance of Jesus's um, life, death, and resurrection on the one hand, and the idea that sins can be cleansed or covered or alleviated or redeemed through caring for the poor. But later, and I, I don't really deal with this in, in my book in much detail, but you get someone like um, uh, someone like John Chrysostom um, uh, arguing that you know if if you're struggling with the sin of greed then the way to get rid of that sin is to give away your money and care for the poor. So I think there can be a, even sort of a softer version of atoning almsgiving that says, um, at the very least, caring for the poor is a way to prevent the continuation of sins like um, uh, greed and covetousness. So let's move on to the contemporary scene and maybe bring this interview home uh, in in the sense of our own lives today a little bit more. Um, so here's my question. How is writing this nuanced how you think the church or individuals therein should be assisting the poor? Much in, much in every way, as, as the Apostle Paul would say. Um, I mentioned earlier that I that I, I wrote this book a lot. I wrote a lot of this book while living with my family in Tanzania. And that experience, this experience has been transformative for me in in many ways, um, not least of which is that it has confronted me on an almost daily basis with the immensity of my own wealth um, and privilege and power in comparison with so many Tanzanians who live um, on so much less than, than, than I have or than our family has. So I think um, it has writing this book has encouraged me to think about developing relationships of reciprocity and solidarity um, in my own life, in, in our family. Um, uh, uh, I think another thing that is, uh, the, that I, w- that I would want to mention is um, in, in, in the particular context here in Tanzania, you can barely go into a church without encountering some form of what people have called prosperity theology that is the idea that you get if you give to the church it's often not framed in terms of caring for the poor but if you give to the church as an institution or to a particular church leader god will bless you materially in this life and um a lot of people have written on this topic um there are various forms of prosperity theology you can find it in the sort of hardest most mechanistic manifestations like if you give a dollar you'll get ten dollars back but even softer forms of prosperity gospel really strongly emphasize the relationship between giving and reward and I, so as i was working on this book i was you know going to churches and talking with christians and with students who were really deeply informed by this idea even if they themselves would reject the label prosperity theology and on the one hand i want to be sensitive to the economic and contextual realities in which this teaching becomes popular because it gives people a sense of hope and agency that they can participate in an economy that um, uh, is different from the normal economy that has excluded them. And for many people, prosperity means something like that they can send their kids to school or that they might have a tin roof rather than a thatched roof over their houses. So it means something very different than what prosperity theology means in the U.S. So writing this book has made me much more sensitive to questions about reciprocity and return. And I think um, if I were to label or to, sorry, if I were to offer one critique 
of Protestant ethics on this particular point. I think Protestants have by and large lost the notion that gift giving should be associated with any kind of return or recompense. Um, uh, uh, we have Protestants have sort of bought into the idea that gift giving should be disinterested and out entirely altruistic and not motivated by any hope of recompense or return. And I frankly think the biblical witness uh, speaks profoundly against that. Um, uh, so that a lot of what my book has to do is actually, I mean, I focus on atoning almsgiving, but the idea of meritorious almsgiving is, I think, very um, important as well um, and something that's been lost in the Protestant tradition. So one of the things that um, you'd mentioned is that we should be developing reciprocal relationships um, and that that's important for uh, our merciful actions and something that you think is lost in the Protestant ethic. Um, what does that look like on the ground level for you? Uh, what does it look like in Tanzania? What does it look like in Pasadena? Well, I think it's hard to develop any kind of reciprocal relationship unless you actually have a relationship with people. So one of the great... Um, sadnesses of the fact of charity in an American context is that charity, as I said at the beginning, happens um, outside of the context of relationships. So it means that we have to work hard to develop relationships with those who are different from us, um, who may have fewer economic resources than us, or at least at the present they may. Um, however, um, and I think the um, New Testament and the um, Early Christian writers are um, provide lots of evidence for this that 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 um, uh, that there can be uh, and should be uh, a reciprocity between any people or communities that are engaged in in a relationship. So, I mean, to make it very personal and practical, like when we have good friends over for dinner in Tanzania, the expectation is that they will have us over for dinner. Um, that's their expectation. Uh, and when we go over to their house for a meal, they cook us um, uh, a wonderful meal. And we sit and enjoy fellowship with each other. And they um, uh, help us, uh, for example, understand Tanzanian culture. Uh, my wife and I have been involved in a number of um, research projects with uh, Tanzanian Christians and Tanzanian leaders um, on uh, not related to this book, but on issues of interpretation of the Bible um, and how um, uh, the Bible and religion, for example, shape attitudes about male circumcision. We, we did a big project on that. And we would never have been able to do that project had we not benefited from the wisdom and the hospitality and the generosity of uh, um, uh, several Tanzanian uh, Christian leaders and professors at the Bible College at which I teach, who became our partners and our guides in the work that we did together. So I mean, that's just one example of the kinds of things that happen when you open yourself up to a genuine relationship with someone who's different from you and who may have fewer resources than you do, but who may have um, a lot to offer in return. Thanks, David. That's a beautiful reflection. Um, well, I think we're out of time. I've really enjoyed having you, uh, and uh, it's, it's certainly been a, a fun conversation, and I do want to uh, recommend your book to our listeners. Uh, it's really superbly nuanced. I think uh, you're arguing uh, important things that are matter not just historically but theologically for the church, uh, not just in terms of getting ancient history right, uh, but beginning to think about how these things could be mobilized in terms of contemporary ethics. So congratulations on a, on a wonderful book. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for your kind words about the book, and thank you for the opportunity to um, uh, talk about it on your on your podcast. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Our guest today has been David Downs, who has been speaking to us about his new book, Alms, Charity, Reward, and Atonement in Early Christianity, published by Baylor University Press in 2016. It's highly recommended, an outstanding contribution on a theologically vital topic. I think listeners who read it will discover that it is superbly researched. There are links on our website, onscript.study. Thanks again for the conversation, David, and thanks to all our listeners.